This podcast is made possible by Workiva and U.S. Bank. Hi, this is Dan Adler, CFO of MapR, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 395. From Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to John Cantor, CFO of Goodwin Proctor, LLP of Boston. You'll want to hear how the quickly evolving market for legal services is demanding that more firms step up their finance leadership making room for CFOs like John, now tasked with optimizing the firm's performance when it comes to serving clients. Our discussion begins after these words from our sponsor. Workiva transforms the way people work through connected reporting and compliance. The facts are, a majority of senior accounting and finance professionals say their financial reporting involves a huge amount of manual work and is inherently error-prone, leading to risk. Risk that's intensified by new business complexities and the changing business climate. Link data elements, numbers, narrative, and calculations together everywhere you use them. When you change data at the source, it's changed at the destination. Gaining trust in your data and processes is that simple. Join over 3,500 customers who enjoy the benefits of using Workiva by connecting their organizations from record to report. Visit workiva.com slash CFO. And what that meant 
but it gave me the opportunity to really get my hands dirty, um, to experience things that I wouldn't have other, otherwise experienced, um, such as I, was, I sort of took on the lead of developing their audit uh, automation process at the time. Um, I was part of a, a, a labor or a union investigation, which I wouldn't have done, and I got the opportunity to really build their audit department from scratch. So really, all of those at the same time of experiencing the, uh, the wonderful lifestyle of Sydney um, was, was two years well spent, but also two years that taught me a lot that I wouldn't have experienced if I just stayed put in London. Um, I think following on from that, and there's a theme to this, as you can pro you'll probably see soon, that um, after I came back from Australia, I actually moved out of practice, decided that uh, being in an accounting practice wasn't for me, and uh, wanted to move sort of more into industry and to business. And so I started work at actually at a global management consultancy. And really, one of the things that struck me throughout my career is you make your own luck. I always say that to people, but being in the right place at the right time is um, you, can't, you can't beat that. And so I was actually there when they were looking at making a, a big U.S. acquisition. They'd not, they'd not made an acquisition before, so this was new to them. And this was an overseas one as well because they were UK headquarters. So uh, I, I found myself on initially the due diligence team and then the integration team, which resulted in a, a six-month posting to Washington, D.C. So, again, going overseas to um, unfamiliar location, unfamiliar in different uh, accounting regulations, culture, etc. all of that happening at the same time as actually working, whatever it was, 16-hour days, trying to help with the integration of this acquisition. Um, the thing for me, and the most fortunate thing for me, was that I was the most senior person from the acquirer on the ground in the U.S. Uh, so I was really the eyes and ears for the chairman, CEO, and CFO at the time. And that was you know, a great insight into what they were thinking. It also helped me really shape what was happening on the ground as far as integration was concerned, um, the need for extensive planning, making sure that you did address uh, ahead of time uh, cultural and language issues that came up quite a lot, even though, of course, English and uh, American is still technically the same language. It's uh, very different interpretations. Um, and also the need for face-to-face -face conversations. I learned a lot about integration. I learned a lot about how not to do integration, um, learning the hard way. But it definitely uh, gave me some real insights into, obviously, working for a U.S. firm, which I, I do now, but also for um, what it takes to really address some of those multicultural um, issues that most of us face in the global environment that we operate in. Um, and I think the final piece in this uh, puzzle for me was after we got through the integration of that firm and uh, it was a fairly painful, difficult process, but let's say three or four years later, first of all, my six months to comment, um, as you can tell, didn't end. It just continued. Uh, the, the main reason for that was um, I was fortunate enough to meet my wife through the process and she's American, so that was one of the reasons why I, I'm still here, but also um, because it was a challenge. It was enjoyable, but it was challenging, and it was um, a better um, career move, I think, for me than going back um, to the UK firm. Anyway, I was, we, were, we were past the integration stage, and at that stage, my remit and my role had become a bit more global. I headed up the team of finance business partners for the organization globally, and what that meant was that I actually had direct line reports. Um, across the globe, so obviously folks in the U.S. and in Europe where I'd held from, but we also had operations in Argentina, India, um, and Australia at the time. And for me, that really made me realize what, a, you know, what global commerce actually is all about, how the world is getting smaller, and that you, know, you need to embrace that. In particular, the fact that my today is someone else's tomorrow, um, you have to learn the importance of time zone management, planning for meetings, making sure that everyone feels um, included, that you address and deal with any cultural and language issues that may happen, whether that be by email, phone call, uh, video conferences, 
Um, you've got to think about all these things, and that stuck with me throughout my career. I've always had overseas um, connections um, through my career, and now as CFO, Goodwin has 10 offices, four of them overseas, three in Europe and one in Hong Kong. And in fact, I have um, my direct line report, a direct line report in Hong Kong and people in my uh, finance team in, in Europe as well. So that, that continues. John, I want to point out, uh, and in part what I think is interesting uh, with what you've shared so far, is that the two earlier companies uh, you were with, these were not short stints. You, you invested, uh, you know, years of your career with each of them. And uh, I want to maybe zero in on the first one, the, the audit uh, experience that you had. Was that with Mazars? So it's, the, the accounting firm is called Mazar. It's actually an interesting story because originally when I joined it, I joined an organization called Neville Russell, which Mazar, which is a French headquartered um, global accountancy practice, um, took over just before I actually left them. Um, but, yeah, so uh, Mazar is how you pronounce it. Now, was it, when you jumped to Sydney, uh, you explained that, but I, I, I was a little confused. Was that a, an acquisition that the, the uh, audit firm did, or was it just they're starting up a practice down there, and, John, we think you could add value? I mean, what was, the, what was sort of the opportunity? So, um, essentially, that organization – it was Neville Russell at the time, was part of a global network of accountancy firms, and they had an accountancy firm that was affiliated to them in each of the geographies. And in Australia, what had happened is this firm, Lord & Brown it was called, uh, had just started up as a result of, as I said, a number of the partners leaving some of the, the, the much larger firms to set up on their own, and they had joined this network. And so it was really... Um, just fortunate for me that there was a sort of a startup feel to that environment. But as far as the secondment is concerned, there was a, an arrangement in place throughout this network that people would send trainees um, and people of different levels across the globe if the individuals wanted to and if there was a need. So the Australian firm absolutely had a need for someone to come over. And in fact, they had actually previously had an arrangement where one of the folks from their office had come to the London office, or we, we actually overlapped, um, which was interesting as well. So um, it was just one of those arrangements. It wasn't an acquisition. It was just a, an affiliation. Okay. So when you jump to uh, PA Consulting, I want to understand, I imagine there were a number of opportunities that you had uh, to jump to a consulting firm, and I, I'm wondering what it was that, led you there. Now, it's not uncommon for to leave uh, an audit manager role to jump to a corporate finance role. Is that what this was? No. So, okay. Yeah. Uh, very, very good questions and a very well thought out um, answer because essentially I was very sure that I didn't want to be in a pure finance role. That might sound strange coming from a CFO at the moment, but um, the technical side of accounting and finance was not the thing that drove me or interested me the most. I liked the, the strategic side, the business side, and the people side. And so when I was looking to leave um, my audit manager role, I was looking at what was the right next step for me. And I was actually interviewing at consultancies um, to actually become a consultant because I thought that might be an interesting job. But one of the things I was concerned about was, the fact that at that time, certainly consultants, if you were working for one of these large, well-known consultancies, the most junior people on the totem pole were expected to work 80-hour weeks, um, live out of their suitcase, never really see home. And I wasn't sure that that was right for me, where I was in my life at that point. And so uh, it just so happened that this opportunity at PA came up where they were looking for someone to be essentially what they called a commercial finance manager, but what I think is best termed as a um, finance business partner, to their consulting business units. And so I was actually working alongside the consultants without being one myself, so I didn't have to do the same amount of traveling that they had. And um, I got to see what it was like to be a consultant. So I, was, I, I sort of went in thinking, let's do this for a while, see whether I want to become a consultant, and then I'll worry about that at the time. But I, I was very much 
part of the finance team um, working alongside the consulting business. And in effect, being a consultant to the consultant, I was like an internal consultant. While the um, consultants were off worrying about their clients' businesses and how to make them more successful, I was working with the leaders of the, uh, the consulting business unit to help them um, run their business as profitably as possible. Say, jumping from a management consulting firm to a law firm uh, is not as big a leap as some might think, uh, as if you're leaving one industry for another. In, in many ways, I would think, the consulting culture and the structure of the, the consulting firm, there are similarities between that and, and a law firm. Is that right? And, and uh, right. was that uh, part of your thinking or part of part of uh, so, Goodwin Proctor's thinking when they said, we've got the guy? Yeah. So. So, so first of all, I should just say, when I joined Goodwin um, five and a half years ago, I joined as the Managing Director of Financial Planning and Analysis. I, I actually only um, became the CFO uh, two years ago, and we'll talk a bit more about that, I'm sure, later. But um, when I was looking to leave PA, um, after I'd been there for um, over a decade, I really felt that, you know, essentially my experiences were really focused on professional services, having been at an accounting firm, obviously, and then being at PA for such a long time. So, you know, for the level of position that I was looking to come into an organization, you probably needed some sector experience. So I was thinking professional services is probably what I needed to look into. It was very unlikely that, you know, say a pharmaceutical company were going to employ me at my level without any pharma experience. So that narrowed my search. And literally, I just started my search, and Goodwin was the only job that I actually applied to because it just happened again, lack of timing. Um, I read the job description on one of the job boards and said, this has actually been written for me because of my experiences that, that I've had over the years. Um, and so I picked up the phone and spoke to the recruiters here at Goodwin. And it was interesting, because, and this says a lot about what we'll talk about, about the, the legal sector shortly, but um, I had to talk my way into an interview. Essentially, they were looking for someone with law firm experience. Um, and that's because the legal sector had, was a very close-knit um, and closed sector in the past. What had happened was if you got a job in a law firm, you usually stayed in the legal sector. Um, that's your comfort zone. What it also meant that is I think the legal sector was sort of a bit um, focused and narrow-minded and blinkered um, in their approach. So it turned out that they had a couple of candidates ahead of me in the pipeline and who had legal for legal experience, and they wanted to pursue those first before they brought me in. Um, I told them that, of course, that actually they wanted someone without law firm experience who could show them new things and open their eyes to things. And uh, they phoned me up 10 days later and said, well, it didn't work out with those guys. Can you come in? And that's what I did. And I met a dozen people in the space of three days. Um, and essentially they offered me the job and I took the job within a week. So it was, it was very quick when it happened and very fortuitous and I didn't have to look hard or long for my next opportunity. But yes, there are a lot of similarities. The similarities though are the fact that when I joined, the legal sector was a good five to ten years behind the consulting sector in, where, in their thinking and their approach. Um, you know, the, the idea of running a law firm as a business was relatively new at the time. And what attracted me most to Goodwin was that they, I was coming in at, towards the end of a strategic review that they were undertaking um, with some external uh, consultants, and they were looking to completely reshape their um, internal structure, but also their go-to-market approach. And they wanted someone who could come in and help them shape that and actually make that a reality. And so that, it was going to be a huge challenge, and that's what enticed me. Um, but uh, there are very a lot of similarities. Some of the metrics are the same. Some of the key focus on, you know, things like utilization and, and rates and everything. It's the same. You're just selling. You're selling time. It's just different time and different values. That's all. Did you feel? Uh, did you have to reorganize finance in some way? Well, so first of all, as I, I said, when I came in, I was I was the managing director of uh, FP&A, so I was reporting to the CFO at the time. So. I, my, my first role was to actually build an FP&A team. They had a, a, a couple of people who did sort of 
budgeting um, loosely um, and had other roles, so they didn't really have an FP&A team. So I needed to, co I needed to come in and I was given literally a, um, not a blank check, but the ability to come in and ch choose how I wanted to structure my team, who I wanted to have on the team, at what level, and then go out and find them. And so that was the first few months of um, my immersion was just getting to know the business, getting to know and understand what they expected of an FP&A function, and then going out and implementing and putting that in place. Um, so I, I absolutely got to build and shape the, the FP&A team and develop the concept of finance business partnering here within our business units. Um, so that was, that was, that was great. Um, but since becoming CFO, um, I've had to do uh, some, we've, we've implemented some changes, but not wholesale. Um, a lot of it was really just getting to grips with the fact that I was um, moving to the top job here. So my predecessor, I, I actually, the CFO who hired me originally um, moved on after a year and a half after I'd been there. He'd been here for um, quite a while before then. But he moved on to become a CRO of another law firm. And uh, the replacement CFO came in from outside, actually, again, from another accountancy firm, actually, as it happens. And uh, we got on very well. But he was actually um, based out of town and spent a lot of time on the road. And that was one of the decisions why he actually didn't stay as long as people were expecting or hoping he would stay um, because of the amount of traveling. And so when he left, I threw my hat in the ring and got an opportunity. I mean, they they, hired, they did the right thing, which was to look externally as well as internally. Um, and after uh, uh, due process, that happened. And one of the unfortunate situations was that there was another internal candidate who obviously didn't get the job. And when they realized that they weren't getting the job, they chose to leave too, which meant that I inherited a whole where they had sat and also had to backfill my own role, my previous FP&A role. So the first few months were just sort of keeping my head above water, trying to do two or three jobs and stabilize the team after a number of people had left. So uh, that was an initial challenge. But since then, we've re made some realignments and certainly built up some areas of our team that were sort of underserved at the time. But we've not made any wholesale reorganizing restructuring. John, I, I think you already uh, supplied us with some insight as far as what the type of role you wanted to create for yourself was as a, as a finance leader. Ordinarily, though, I asked that question. Um, have we covered this, or is that something I can ask again? Well, you can, you can, you can ask that question because I think, that as clearly, this is my first CFO role. Um, one, of the, one of the interesting things of my um, tenure at uh, PA Consulting is I actually served under six different CFOs um, or acting interim CFOs as, as was. And that taught me a lot. So it taught me a lot that maybe the lifespan of a CFO isn't that long. Um, and so I wanted to make the most of my few years that I had here. But um, in addition to that, it also taught me a lot about how to really create um, a strong team and be a strong CFO, but for me, um, the role and the reason why I was excited about this opportunity at Goodwin was really because my vision of what a CFO ought to be completely aligned with what the senior leadership here ha had and wanted, which was for a true partner, um, someone who had opinions, would be able to contribute towards the firm's strategy, um, had a voice that they would respect and listen to, and uh, wasn't just what finance tends to be at some law firms still, and certainly have been historically, which is just sort of a, a back office function of necessity. So that's what I wanted out of my role, but I also wanted, uh, you know, on the specifics to have a role where I could feel that I had the right team in place. So I've I've been given a lot of leeway to make sure I've got the right team, um, to spend time with that team and get to know them properly, to spend time with the partners. So Goodwin has over 300 partners who effectively are the, the owners of the firm and therefore indirectly my boss. So getting to meet the partners and getting to understand what it is that they expect and want from the finance team and their CFO. Um, and then above all, 
and this is one of the things I've seen happen to previous bosses of mine um, in the CFO position, not to get mired down in the details 100% of the time, uh, to be able to have that time for some big picture thinking and some long-term thinking and direction setting. And I certainly didn't have that at the beginning of my tenure here, but you know, we've got to a position now where um, I do have that. Um, so I'm fortunate in that regard. I want to ask you about uh, the firm's offerings today and how competitive uh, the legal community can be uh, for these types of services. I have to believe when you uh, compare notes with your CFO peers, there's something that they're always surprised to learn about. Are there a number of things that come to mind when you think of networking events and your, your CFO peers? Yeah, lots of things come to mind. First of all, I say I go to a lot of networking events within the legal community. So, you know, our CFOs, we, we hang out a lot at different law firms. And, and within the legal sector, there are a huge range of experiences um, and expectations. So that's, that's number one. And part of that is because the, the legal sector has probably undergone more change in the last 10 years than in the previous 100-plus years. Um, it's not a sector that's renowned for change. It's full of attorneys who, by type, are, while they might be type A people, they are very conservative and cautious in their nature on the whole. Um, they don't do change well, um, and they don't tend to embrace it. Obviously, that's a generalization. But that change has definitely been forced upon them, whether they like it or not, over the last decade or so. Um, essentially, the recession back in 08 and 09 transformed the whole legal sector because all of a sudden it became a buyer's market. You know, you still hear stories of the good old days when the phone just rang, you did the work, the phone would ring, you did the work, and it just, you know, you didn't have to work for anything um, to, to, to get business in the door. That went away with the recession, and all of a sudden the leverage shift has shifted to our clients. So, you know, BD the whole business development and the idea of having a business development team within a law firm, very few firms had a business development capacity a couple, you know, more than 10 years ago. Uh, so now it's a much more competitive environment than it used to be, and it's driven by the clients. So there's lots of pressures on price that never used to exist. Everything used to be just build the hours that you work, you know, straight time and materials, and that was great, and you, this was your rate, and this is what you charged. Now, much more of the work is, um, you know, on alternative fee structure, fixed fee or a cap or some risk-reward sharing um, agreement. The pressure on prices is phenomenal. You know, realization on your standard rates used to be close to 100%, you know, going back 10 years. It's now, you know, in the low 80s. So it doesn't mean rates haven't gone up, but the amount that you recover on those rates has definitely gone down. Um, we find that procurement departments are actively involved in procurement of legal services. Um, RFPs are the norm now. Uh, yeah. Many clients have, you know, preferred supplier panels. They even we've even experienced, you know, reverse auctions to win work, which I don't think helps serve the client um, adequately. Anyway, I think you get what you paid for to a certain extent. But um, all this has transformed the way that we approach the market. Um, at the same time, you've seen some pretty, seen some pretty high profile law firm failures over the years um, for a number of reasons. Some of it because they haven't run their businesses well enough. Some of it because of the demands of the sector and the fact that uh, it is much more competitive and people don't survive. And clients aren't nearly as loyal to the firms that they've always used as they used to be. And people aren't lawyers and partners that the same firm for life anymore. The lateral movement between firms is much greater than it used to be. And then layer on top of all of that, the disruption which most sectors face um, with technology. For instance, you know, it used to be that you used to get a lot of the junior associates doing all the document reviews and charging you know, a lot of money for a lot of hours. That doesn't happen anymore. Either you go to an alternative provider who just focuses on that, and they have teams of much cheaper resources, often in lower-cost geographies, um, doing that for you. Uh, you don't need a qualified lawyer necessarily to do some of that. 
or as you find now, you've got um, software that's going to do it for much quicker, much faster, much cheaper, and much more accurately. So that's a big change. And then the final disruption that the sector is facing is new entrants. So you know, everyone thinks of their standard law firm, and that's great, and those law firms still exist. Uh, but you've got other players. So certainly outside of the outside of the U.S., you've got the big four um, consultancies and accountancy firms who are growing their legal presence and are extremely large um, number of lawyers um, outside of the U.S. In the U.S., they're still not able to practice law in the same way. They're finding ways to sort of poke around at the edges in the, in the legal sector within the U.S., but that's a big change. And then you've got sort of the virtual firms and the digitized firms, you know, uh, legal Zoom, um, things like that, that really trying to avoid the large overheads that many of us law firms have as a result of sort of being brick and mortar law firms. And the other thing that's interesting, and while it's not here in the U.S. at the moment, but certainly is overseas in uh, the U.K. and Australia, you know, you don't have to be a lawyer to own, own a law firm or own a share in a law firm anymore. You've got a number of uh, law firms that have floated um, and listed in Australia and in the U.K. You've got private equity firms now owning um, law firms. You've got banks and supermarkets setting up their own law firms, obviously more in the retail space. All that is changing, um, and certainly for Goodwin, where we now have a global presence, we have to, we do encounter those um, other legal providers in, in other geographies as well. So I think in answer to your question, there's a lot more change within the legal sector than people would, would probably imagine, because you don't see that sort of thing in uh, the TV shows and the movies, um, which is where most people, including myself, um, previously got our, uh, our ideas about what it was to be a lawyer. So what are the, what are the key numbers or metrics that you uh, pay close attention to uh, to understand how the law firm's performing? Um, we, we obviously don't sell widgets. We sell time. Um, so time and the hours worked are pretty critical. The only thing is, you know, it's not like I can just come in and refresh my dashboard and look at how things are, you know, today or this afternoon because lawyers are only actually required to enter their time um, at a minimum weekly. We have a lot of people who do put their time in daily, but they're required to do it weekly at Goodwin. Um, so there's always a lag on being able to look at um, utilization um, or productivity as we refer to it. Um, on, a, on, a, on a daily basis, but that's certainly something which we look at very closely um, on a monthly basis, and in particular, we look at trends. We cut it and slice it, you know, by business unit, by geography, by office, by timekeeper category. All those things are important because managing capacity is the key because, you know, our biggest expense by far um, are our people, um, and so we, we need to make sure that we have the right size to deliver what we need to deliver to our clients, and that we don't end up paying for, you know, wasted um, resource. But then in addition to time, I think that the thing that I do look at on a daily basis is what we call inventory. So obviously we don't have stock in the same sense as, uh, you know, a manufacturing company might have. But by inventory, I'm, I'm referring to WIP. So the, the hours that have been worked that haven't yet been billed and also the uh, AR that we haven't yet collected. One thing that I think will shock a lot of people because it certainly surprised me and I didn't realize this until I walked in the door here, was that um, the vast majority of large U.S. law firms work on an adjusted cash basis. We don't uh, follow standard gap and accrual principles. Um, so from a revenue recognition perspective, we recognize revenue when cash actually hits our bank account. So uh, that makes life very simple but at the same time can make things uh, quite stressful. So in addition to that, as a true partnership, we distribute 100% of our profits that we generate every year to the partners. So uh, this sharpens the mind and focus, particularly as a partnership approaches you know, its fiscal year end, because if you don't get it in the door, it doesn't count as revenue, it won't count as profit, and they won't get their share of it paid out that, in that year. So uh, that's... That's good, but it also means that there's usually a natural uptick in collections and therefore revenue in the last couple of months of every fiscal year for most law firms. 
um, it's, it's pretty stressful when you enter the last six to eight weeks of the year and you have a target and effect, effectively, just to show you the scale, um, last year we collected 4% of our annual revenue on the last day of our fiscal year. So um, looking at inventory is um, pretty time consuming. But then there's a host of other metrics that we look at. Um, obviously, overall total number of hours is pretty key. But then we look at things, um, other metrics. So you tend to look at these uh, really only on an annual basis because of the skew that we just talked about um, in, in our revenue um, flow. But essentially things like revenue per lawyer, revenue per equity partner, profit per lawyer, profit per equity partner. Those are, those are metrics that each firm in the US at least um, sends into the American Lawyer magazine for its annual benchmarking survey. And they, uh, they then publish their rankings and uh, everyone loses a lot of sleep over those as well because that's important not just for bragging rights, but it actually is important in attracting the best quality candidates to the firm and retaining um, your talent as well, which is a big challenge in the market these days. Uh, usually we like to ask for a finance strategic moment. This could be any time in your career, John, uh, but it, it, it's intended to uh, make you recall uh, a place in time where there was a, uh, something given your lines of sight into the organization. You were able to see an opportunity or a risk and, and change the direction of the, uh, the firm in some ways. Anything come to mind? Yeah, it's go, probably going back to fairly early on in my career, but, um, uh, well, actually, probably two things. One which was just sort of a state of mind, and then the other thing was more of a specific example. But um, I remember dialing into a conference call um, about a potential acquisition. Uh, I was actually on vacation, which was, so I was, doing my bit and dialing in one on vacation because the executive chairman and CFO and CEO were on the line. So we were talking and um, I remembered expressing a, a point of view on something which wasn't actually specific to the numbers but just about the situation. And uh, I remember that the chairman said to me in front of everyone on the call, what do you know, John, you're just a numbers guy, um, which obviously probably put the wind out of myself somewhat and I, I probably didn't contribute much to the call after that and it didn't make for the rest of a very joyous vacation but um, what it did was made me realize that actually um, that's far from the case and I was going to prove him wrong and which I did over the next few years and I certainly earned his respect in that regard but I think it's really that you know if you're just a numbers guy then you know you're going to be limited in what you can can do it as an organization. You obviously need the numbers. You need to be able to interpret them, know what they're telling you and stuff. But it's only one piece of the puzzle. And that, you know, strategy, which is really what I think the CFO's role ought to be, um, shouldn't really be driven by what the digits are on a page. Yeah, they absolutely inform decisions. They paint a picture, but they're not the sole determinant of what strategic decisions should be. So that, that was a, a real eye-opener and a lesson for me and sort of drove me on the path of my, my career trajectory. Um, and then the, the other specific example was I was assigned the task of assessing um, a struggling non-core business unit and I spent four or five months, it was you know in a different location, so I spent four or five months spending a lot of time down there getting to know the people, their processes, their systems, what they sold, how they sold it and everything. Ultimately, my recommendation was we either need to close or sell that business because it, it wasn't going to be the right fit for, for, for us going forward. But I'd obviously built up quite strong relationships with many of the people actually there. And so making that recommendation was pretty tough because um, they had embraced me and stuff. And so I was very concerned about the impact, the negative impact that that's going to have on a number of people. But I, what, what that taught me was you know, you have to make or be prepared to make the hard decisions, even if they are going to impact people. In that particular case, it was going to impact a lot of other people if we didn't make that decision and didn't take that action. Um, so you've got to think about the bigger picture and the, the greater long-term good for the organization. So uh, it turned out that, yeah, sure, several people did end up losing their jobs, but it actually provided an opportunity for many others and a stepping stone and a push in the right direction for, for some of them to take their careers to the to the next level. So, um, but that, that, that was 
quite insightful for me fairly early on in my career. We know uh, professional services, the assets, uh, take the elevators up and down. Uh, but what role does finance play when it comes to talent inside a law firm? Well, so um, I think finance plays a, a massive role and has the potential to play a massive role in, within a law firm. So I'm, I'm very fortunate because at Goodwin, we actually have invested a huge amount of time and effort and, and money, obviously, in um, developing our professional staff, so all of, all of our non-lawyer functions, because one of the things that we say is a real differentiator for us as an organization when compared to our peers is we actually want the, the lawyers to focus on the practice of law and solving their clients' legal problems. That's important. But we actually really need to focus on the business of law. And by that, obviously, running ourselves and our, our firm as, as a good, effective, profitable business, that's important. But much more so than that, we're now working alongside our lawyers with our clients. We are going to pitches. So we have a, for instance, a, a pricing and project management team, which is part of finance, which basically will work with our BDA team and our, our lawyers in responding to RFPs, but actually also going on pitches. And um, there have been several occasions where the feedback has been, we actually wouldn't have got that work if someone from the pricing team hadn't have been there to talk to their pricing people and work through some of the issues and make things clear. Um, so you can add real value there. We just, you know, in the same way, our IT team has been actively involved with some of our clients, because we operate a lot in the tech space, testing out their products and giving them feedback to help with their products. We work with a lot of our larger clients who have, you know, large um, legal teams actually housed within their organization. We work with their GC um, and also their, they usually have um, group legal COOs. We work closely with them, giving them advice and insight, for instance, which e-billing system would we recommend for them and should they use and contemplate, you know, what should they put in their outside council guidelines, those sort of things. We're giving advice and we're providing services. We're not charging for them, but we're providing services in a true partnership way to our clients. And for me, that's where finance can really make a difference to the organization, um, not just about getting the money in the door for our own revenue, but building up those deep and trusted relationships with our clients. Thought Leader listeners, even more outstanding mentoring advice from CFO John Cantor after these words from our sponsor. You want smart, clear, and honest guidance to help you meet the financial goals of your middle market business. With U.S. Bank, you have a partner who will help you find the right solutions to help your organization reduce payment costs, enhance control, improve cash flow, and expand your spend visibility. U.S. Bank's dedication to making ethical decisions and doing the right thing is at the heart of what they do, and their efforts haven't gone unnoticed. They've been named a 2017 World's Most Ethical Company for the third consecutive year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middle market. Okay, we're going to move to the mentoring round where I get to ask you several quick questions intended to uh, inspire and mentor aspiring finance leaders. What's one thing that's exciting you about finance and business today? Um, for me, it's the change and the disruption that's coming. So whether it be, um, you know, the concept of um, blockchain and what that's going to do to the finance organization, whether it's because finance is now finally completely out of the sort of the back office cycle that it has been in for many years in many organizations and is really there as a true business partner. All those changes, um, my, my father was an accountant for you know, his career, and you know, I look at what he did and what he achieved in his organizations, and it was old-school finance, you know, old-school old making sure the, the books balanced and everyone got paid and uh, you know, the audit got the, the seal of approval. Now finance, for me, is 
much more than that, and it encompasses a much greater range of um, skill sets than it used to, and therefore much more opportunity for a lot of people. We have in the finance team here, half the people aren't qualified accountants in, or qualified um, in any shape or form with regard to accounting, but they play a big role in our pricing and, and project management team, in our billings and collections team. You know, and so there's much more to offer within finance now than there used to be. John, when you uh, entered the CFO office for the first time, is there a piece of advice you wish someone had given you or shared something with you? <laughs> Actually, funnily enough, lots of people shared lots of advice at the time because um, everyone's got their thoughts. Um, I'm just thinking in hindsight, if there's anything I wish I'd been told. Um, so the one thing that and I don't think it's because of where I am, the CFO. I actually think this is probably true because I have spoken to other CFOs um, over the last couple of years. But much, much more time has been spent dealing with people issues than I was envisaging. Um, some of them very good. Some of them obviously you know, much harder to deal with. But it's taken a lot more time, effort, and energy to do that. And one of the things that I've spent a lot of time doing is investing in my relationship with our HR business partner that we have here at Goodwin. And for me, that relationship is paramount. I'm, I'm speaking with them, if not every day, certainly every few days, um, because there's always things that they can provide insight and help for. So everyone talks about the relationship between finance and IT, and that's important too, and we have a great relationship here. But I think everyone neglects or forgets the relationship that's key, which is you know, with HR because of your people and your talent. Because I think certainly where I'm sitting now, the war on talent is um, only getting hotter and hotter and harder and harder. Um, so that to me is probably the bit of advice or insight I would have liked ahead of time. Do you have a personal habit that you believe has contributed to your professional success? So... People, people in my team over the years have, and colleagues of mine have joked about the fact that it doesn't matter what time they send me an email, and I always get a response within a few minutes. Not because I've given them the answer, but at least acknowledging that I've got receipt or that I'm on it or that I'll get back to them. Um, and that was all the more so because now I do a lot of traveling. People don't know what time zone I'm in, so... They think it's 3 a.m. in the morning when actually I'm in Europe and it's not 3 a.m. in the morning. That's fine. Um, but I, I think a pet peeve of mine is when people don't respond um, in a timely manner. And I don't mean doing what I do and getting back, you know, pretty promptly within the, within the hour, but certainly getting back within a 24-hour period. I hate having to follow people up because they haven't come back to me. So for me, um, my responsiveness and attentiveness um, and speed of response has definitely, um, I think, helped me in my career. Is there a book you'd like to recommend? So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a big reader, Jack, um, but uh, I did read a book uh, on my last vacation, which I, I, I highly recommend for a number of reasons. I mean, uh, it's, it's a riveting read, and it's actually, despite the subject matter, actually quite an, an easy read, and I couldn't put it down. Um, it's called The Tattooist of Auschwitz by Heather Morris, and it's obviously a true story. Uh, it's fascinating, and you wouldn't have thought um, you could really get too enthralled um, and gripped by the story of someone who was undergoing such, um, such difficult times. But for me, it, and I don't want to ruin the book, but it, it, was, it was truly inspiring that an individual could... Um, do what they did um, and come through at the other end and persevere and succeed as a result of that. And for me, you know, if we put a, a business spin on it, it was that, that, that angle, that, that perseverance and that um, commitment and dedication to getting through um, the nightmare that they were living in um, and always still managing to see things as glass half full I think, for me, that was pretty inspiring. Okay, we're up to our final question. And, uh, John, I just want to say thanks. I, I did throw you a few extra questions early on in the interview. I, I just thought you had a, a, an interesting opening chapter. 
and uh, needed to know more. But uh, our final question is, over the next 12 months, what are your priorities as a finance leader? So for my organization, my priorities are helping shape the next iteration of the strategic plan and securing the continued growth of the organization as we build up our geographic footprint. Um, and in particular, to do that, underpinning all of that is making sure we develop and invest in the systems that we need and the technology that we need to support that. Uh, we've historically not been a great investor, but over the last few years, we've picked that up and we've just upgraded our um, GL system. We, we Last year, we introduced a um, best-in-breed budgeting tool, which, um, which was going to make a difference for us going forward and for forecasting and planning. And so making sure that we um, are well-equipped to, uh, to, to live up to our potential over the coming years and to be ready for any downturn that might come as well. So um, I'm, I'm, while I'm a glass-half-full kind of guy, I'm also a realist, so we have to be prepared for that as well. So that, those are the real challenges, and then just in keeping my talent engaged and retaining them, and where, where we've grown our talent base, um, still being able to find and recruit um, the best possible people. Those are, those are my key takeaways for when I'm focused on the next one. Thank you for listening, and don't forget, Thought Leader listeners, you can now go premium at cfothoughtleader.com.